Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined, as always, by the dear, the wonderful, Mr. Jason Three Names, or Jason Four Names, depending on how you want to count it. I'm looking at you, Mr. James Foster. Uh, How are you on this fine Monday? Well, it's not Monday for the listeners, but it's our Monday. It is not. Uh, I'm I'm tickety boo. Thanks. I'm just thinking Jason N plus one names. Jason and plus one names. Just Jason letter N plus one. So every oh. time like this was to Foster's original point, which yeah. was, but if I get called Jason four names, well now that's an additional name. So every time names are added, you got to do N plus one. Fuck. So Jason getting... N plus one names. So when do we bring it like? To the power of 10 And Like do you carry the one You, you know me it's I'm the power of 10 continually I'm the power of 11 <laughs> let's be honest The power of Christ compels you um, <laughs> It's always the horror movies with you I am yeah. Drinking some very hot coffee So apologies to the listeners If I am slurping into the mic I will be more careful I am drinking some peppermint tea to settle <laughs> my my tummy. I've got a bit of a tummy going on. A bit of a tummy. Yeah. A bit of a tum-tum. Yeah, which, you know, I was actually looking forward to this because last night, um, listener, Single Cast Nation member, Travis Williams had posted his review of our Daluin, which, oh, nice. uh, which inspired me to pour a little bit last night. And I said, you know what? Thank you, Travis. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Travis. And and I said, you know what? Tomorrow's my daughter's birthday. I think I'll raise a glass of this, or I'll suggest to Jason that we raise a glass of this in honor of my young girl. But I get this, I get this tummy thing going on, and all I want to do is drink peppermint tea. So I'm I'm more than happy to drown. You just <laughs> tap, tag me in whenever I'm needed. Tag me in. Um, I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. About your trip to Scotland. Oh, okay. I've done that. You've done that? Like I went to Scotland. <laughs> yep, continue. Is there anything specific about the, the trip that you're curious about? Well... Like the length of it, the girth of it, like... Well, you had, you had the distinct pleasure of being there in person. Yes. And I had, I had the distinct pleasure of reading Dave Broom's new book, A Sense of Place. Yes. Just come which will be published October 4. And not only am I living vicariously through your texts <laughs> from Scotland, mm-hmm. but I'm also living vicariously through Dave's book and Christina Kernahan's photography. Oh, which is fantastic, by the way. I, I got the same book and it's exactly. gorgeous. Pictures are amazing. I haven't gotten to the words yet, but anyway, continue. Exactly. So so we will have a future episode coming up. Last time we spoke to Dave on this podcast, he was talking about a sense of place mm-hmm. project, trying to work through COVID, trying to make it all work out. And now the physical book is, is in our hands, as I say, coming October 4. And then we will speak with him in November. Yeah. And, yep. uh, and we'll, we'll ask him many, many more questions. But all of this is simply to frame me living vicariously through two other people when it comes to my home country. So, so <laughs> at least one so of them is Scott. 
<laughs> so how is the old girl? What did you what did you discover while you were over there? Oh wow. You know, this was this was so first off, it was a nine day trip. And it was a nine day trip with the entire Impex team. So for our listeners, you know, it, if if you haven't guessed this already, I imagine after six years, maybe you've guessed this. Uh, in addition to to running Single Cast Nation with Jason, I have a secondary hat that I wear, uh, where I'm the national sales director for Impex Beverages, and this was a trip for that, where we were visiting. Well, primarily we were visiting the distilleries within the UK that we import. Though mm-hmm. sadly we we missed Pendaren this time around, but we we did get to go down to Yorkshire and visit Spirit of Yorkshire Distillery, which was fantastic. Um, but it very it's much just a, a yeah. short skip and a jump from Rassie Fuck. in the northwest oh corner my gosh. of Scotland. I'm so right? glad the trip wasn't Rasse to uh, to to Yorkshire. That would have been nightmarish. Uh, so it, it very much was a work trip for the entire sales team to just. You know, we have five new people who haven't been to these distilleries before, so it was important for them to get a to have their own sense of place, right? As 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 Dave mm. so rightly mm. puts it, and and it was intense. I mean, you and I have been <laughs> managing, building whiskey geek tours of Scotland. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it with you since 2011. You'd been doing it mm-hmm. prior to that, and. Indeed. And I will say, without any shadow, with like, I'm not mincing any words here, this was easily the most complex and intensive tour I've ever put together, (laughs) ever, (laughs) with 15 people in tow, or 15 people total, right? Um, So what did I discover this time around? I was not on social media. Hey! <laughs> I really decided to just pull back as much as I can and try to enjoy my time out there as much as I can for oh, me. Look at, oh, gosh. Right? Oh, this makes me so happy. <laughs> wow. Wow. Josh is finally learning from Jason. Oh, oh it makes me so happy. So happy. It, it was both uncomfortable and comfortable at the same time. Like, I, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I made a point of not pulling out my phone to take pictures, right? So here's one thing. We had Johnny Balderay, a.k.a. Whiskey and Donuts, also, mm-hmm. you know, the Impex's social media guy, um, who was there to, to take the pictures. I'm not going to pick his strawberries. I'm not going to take his job away from him. Okay. I thought that was a euphemism. Okay. So you're not going to pick a man's strawberries. I'm not going to pick. Yeah. His dingleberries. Now that's a whole issue. No, no No. one's going to make you pick any other, (laughs) anybody's strawberries, Joshua. You haven't been to Scotland. That's a you decision. (laughs) You make whatever decision you want, mate. I support you. I'm behind you 100%. So there are places in Scotland that I've been to, and it was familiar territory, right? Like first stop was... Kilhoman, right? So getting back to Isla was amazing. Hearing about some of the expansion that they're going to be doing, which I don't want to talk about here. I'm going to, you know, see if we can bring on Anthony or or James back on because Kilhoman is going to go through some big and positive changes and enhancements to what they're doing. That's insane, Uh, given that they only just recently completed an expansion. Just recently. Uh, That's whiskey. So that was good. And then after that, you know, you leave Isla and you head straight to Raze. 
As one does. As one does. Yep. Right. So you're you're six six to six and a half hours up the road, <laughs> up to Sconser. Just up the road. Just, <laughs> Just up, up the road. road. Yeah. Uh, in a seventeen person bus on those Highland roads that are uphill and down dale and like through nightmares and and here's the good thing. Despite the rough roads, and they were rough, especially in a seventeen person bus, we didn't have a single day of rain. Not a single day of rain. So I had just sunshine everywhere. So Getting up to Raze, you know, you, you drive into Sconser. So you, you go over the Sky Bridge, you drive about 20 minutes or so to Sconser. Controversial. Yep. The, the amount of time you drive? No, the bridge. Still controversial. Careful is it still tell. controversial? Oh, of course. Why is of the course. Sky Bridge still controversial? It's not an island. I've taken away the island rights. It's not an island? Oh, it is an island, and you're connecting it to the mainland. Is that the... Oh, right. Controversial. They're like, you leave us well alone, Derry. I've, I've been to Sky. That's exactly what they sound like. So oh, perfect. Wow. You learned the perfect accent. Yeah, that's, that's the Sky accent. Right? It's the Terry oh, it Jones perfect. Sky accent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, so we, we get into Sky, which is gorgeous, and we take the ferry over to, to Rase. And, and it was really great to see their operations you know they're they're a distillery that is doing it right and doing it on an island that's never had a distillery before at least that's known to us uh it's an island of 161 people you know it's 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 tiny with some really interesting world war one and world war two history happening on there um we'll bring someone back on the podcast to to go into more details Regarding Rase, we did have Ian Robertson, who was the previous yes, head distiller the, there. Back in the day. Back in the day. Yep. He's now with uh, with Dalmore, but we'll, we'll have some some others on to, to, to discuss that. Uh, here's, here's what I will say. One of the most beautiful places on earth. Oh, again, the photography of it in a sense of place oh, yeah. is spectacular. Yeah. Absolutely spectacular. And this isn't me blowing smoke up your ass or any other Scots person's ass or arse, however you okay. you, you, you But like are my strawberries it. safe? That's the question. Your strawberries are safe. <laughs> okay. Bring out the smoke. Smoke uh, strawberries. I'm not sure there's a more beautiful country on earth than Scotland. It is... It's- fucking remarkable it is no I, yeah. I think there's a fair claim to be made there and, yeah. and i i certainly feel that way going through christina's photography here yeah as i'm i'm just looking at it like i come from there <laughs> that's yeah. that's my country in those photos yeah and virginia is beautiful absolutely beautiful living in the shenandoah valley is is lovely pacific northwest i do have a Oh, very yeah, special it's, spot it's in my heart for the Pacific Northwest. And listen, you Scotland, know, Scotland, yeah. uh, Scotland does all right for itself. It, it's okay. It does okay. Um, but like I said, you know, we're, we're visiting distilleries that that you know we we don't necessarily import. We're hitting a few places. Like we went to we went to see Ian at at Glen Murray. He showed us around. He told us of some updates they've got going on. Ooh. Another another opportunity to bring him back to <laughs> to talk about that again. What's whiskey doing? It's becoming more and more popular. What are distilleries doing to answer that? Expanding, expanding, expanding. Um, so it was it was good to be back in Speyside. I stayed at uh, Elgin's 
fifth best hotel, <laughs> the the mansion, which? which is now the first best hotel in Elgin. Over COVID, COVID was good to it. COVID was very good to it. It went from the five spot to the one spot. Does that, I don't know if it's still in the one spot, but it certainly made a move over COVID. Does that mean the first four hotels have shuttered? I hope that's not the case. I haven't looked too deeply, to be honest with you, because I didn't want to discover that truth. Um, <laughs> Although I do like your your suggestion that the only way the fifth best hotel in Elgin would become the number one <laughs> is if the top four shuttered. Right. How good. do Highlanders become the only Highlander? They have to kill their competition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there can be only one. You know, it is written. Um, <laughs> then we we went to Aberlour, to not Aberlour Distillery, but to the town of Aberlour to visit with Glen Charles Alkey. Town of Aberlour. Charles, yes, that's right. Charles Town of Aberlour. Uh, we went to Glen Alkey. That was my first time at the distillery, and that was really cool because you see this distillery that's can produce four point three million liters of spirit per year, and I think they're doing only eight hundred thousand. And you see the size yeah, of their cool. stills; they're they're just massive. And they, they like, um, like uh, Nakdu, who produce Anak, have the, uh, the horizontal uh, shell and mm. tube condensers, which is, <laughs> which is really cool. And got to have dinner with, uh, you're going to like this one, having dinner with Billy Walker and Ronan Curry from, from Glen Alakey at the Druthy. And, and I remember sitting down and looking at all of the glassware and seeing all of the wine bottles that Billy was ordering. He was like, we're going to have four Merlots on this table, four white wines on this one. And I'm looking across the table with Billy next to me. And I said to myself, self, you're going to pour shit all over Billy's lap. <laughs> and guess what I did? Oh, the poor man's strawberries. <sighs> Thank God. It didn't actually get on his lap, but I went to reach to cheer someone <laughs> and I oh, hit no. a, oh, no. uh, a nearly empty bottle of Merlot, which hit Billy's glass of Guinness, which he was like whew, lightning fast, like he was ready for it and, it. and it missed his lap, thankfully. Um, he saw you coming in that door. He's like, this guy is going to spill something on me this evening. Right. He saw tell. the table. He's like, this guy, this guy with the hair, this fucking American with the hair, he's going to do it. Um, <laughs> but he, he was so good about it. He's like, look, Joshua, nothing got on my lap. I'm perfectly fine. This happens. Please do not sweat it because I was obviously sweating it. I was like, I just spilled wine on a whiskey legend, right? We talk about that all the time. You have these whiskey legends, your Bill Lumsden's, your, you know, your Billy Walker's, your, um... Fuck, what's his name? Come on, give me a legend who's not a Billy. Come on, let's hear your know, incomplete right? list here. Oh, Joshua, it's been gone for nine days, but you're still back to the incomplete lists. I love it. Right, you're Rachel, you're Rachel Berry's of the world. 30 right? years in the industry, thank you very much. Right, and, and, and so on. And so, gosh, there's, there's a lot of legends, and all I can think of are the two so Billies. Anyway, so, th- so that, w- that was great, you know. Just getting an understanding of some of their stocks that they have in their warehouse and, and what they're doing with sherry, what they're doing with Scottish oak and different types of virgin oak. That was cool. I can tell you're already tired going back over. This. I, I am, you're but like, let, let me let me tell you one. Let me tell you one. Huh, let me tell you one last one, Jason. That this yes. one, 
This one will, will warm the cockles of your heart and soul. Okay. I was at Lockley Distillery mm-hmm. in Robbie Burns' country mm-hmm. with one of Robbie Burns' houses connected to the distillery. Lovely. Walking around his farms, mm-hmm. the barley that was growing there. And I got to see the operation from <laughs> barley to bottle, along with our friends uh, David Ferguson and John Campbell, who were previously on an episode, and, and some of the other great people on the team there, and just seeing what they're doing there. And oh, by the way, Neil, who is their, um, who basically owns the distillery, it's his farm, it's his house, it's his land. And and talking with him, and and the passion just oozed out of every pore in his body. Not necessarily about the whiskey. I mean, definitely about the whiskey, but for him, it was the land and it was the barley, and that's what he really cared about. You know, it was it was clear. I was I was watching him speak to some some of the others in our group, and some of the others in our group were actually, you know, and were obviously whiskey centric. And you could tell Neil hit a bit of a brick wall. He, he was more interested in talking about the land and the barley, you know. And that was that was kind of cool to see. You know, you could see where people's true passions lie, and it, and it's back to that sense of place, right? Back to what what you're talking about yep. here. Yep. And that's and that's what was driving Neil. And it was it was really clear to see that. And I mean, yes, it was a big tour. It was a long tour. But it was it was really special getting to to revisit some familiar places and to discover some new ones as well and, and meet new friends. Well, I am pleased to say that I have forged my own way to Lockley, and I will be there October six. Oh, lovely jubbly! And I am so excited about that. I am. I've been chomping at the bit to get there since our our interview with David and John, as you rightly bring up. But then also your Impex deep dive uh, that David Ferguson was oh, a part yeah, of. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, that was excellent. Uh, and so I I have been very eager. We have made our purchases here in the U.S. of the the inaugural and of the sewing edition. Yeah, we have. Uh, those those have been acquired. So I'm. I'm very ready to see it and spend time with a fellow Ayrshireman in David Ferguson. Ah, uh, oh, yeah, wee, wee. I'm, I'm a wee bit giddy here. Um, to your point, though, where you're talking about Neil and the farm and the land, it's one aspect that I loved about A Sense of Place, uh, the, the Dave Broom book that we've been talking about here, is it looks at barley, at grain, yeah. at farmers. Yeah. And it looks at what distilling and distillers and distilleries will be able to do going forward mm, mm-hmm. in collaboration with farmers. Instead of farmers just growing a commodity, yeah. it's now a question of, well, would you grow this barley for me? That barley for me? Mm. Would you grow some experimental rye for me? Yeah. Um, and then there's a, another component of it talking about Scottish oak as well. Yeah. And there's this kind of rising tide of Scottish oak. You just mentioned that a moment ago with Glenallachy, where it's what role could this play in this industry? And, you know, if we're bringing barley local, can we bring mm. oak local? Um, well, in com- community, right? Well, Building communities. 
So I like what you're saying in here, and, and I'm glad that you brought up Scott Ashok because I think there's a link, maybe tenuous, maybe not, to today's guest. So when we, we have a guest, yeah, we believe it or not, we have a guest. <laughs> oh today. shoot! Okay, let's <laughs> let's get on with the business then. Uh, when we were out to dinner with uh, with Billy and Ronan from Glenalkey, we started discussing the Scottish oak. And oh no, it was it wasn't out to dinner. It was when we first got to the distilleries with Ronan and Richard. Richard's uh, Jay, he'll kill me if I get this wrong, but but basically he's he's the the. Um, distillery manager there and we were talking about scottish oak and he brought up garyana oak aha yep 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 yep. and and his point was he said you know similar to garyana where it's such an intense wood typically used for a finish or for a smaller part of westland's garyana releases scottish oak a rare like garyana and B has a certain intensity that they don't think that they could use for yep. extended maturations. But again, you know, back to the idea of finishing or back to the idea of being a component of uh, a larger, you know, marriage of casks. And and so here we are now talking with with Steve Holly, uh, who is formerly of Westland Distillery, uh, but but during his time at Westland. He, along with a few others, started. Now let me. I want to make sure that I got this right here. Uh, the ASMWC, <laughs> which I think stands for the American Sadomasochism Walk-in Clinic. Is that? Do I have that correct? Oh, the battle has begun. <laughs> the American Single Malt Whiskey. Confederation, consortium, commission. Commission. There we go. Yeah. Sorry. All joking aside. Uh, so Steve Holly. Walk-in clinic is pretty <laughs> impressive, bro. Well, think about it. I mean, if you really go hard with the sadomasochism, I think at some point oh you will need a walk-in gosh. clinic. Like safe words only get you so far, if I'm not mistaken. We're joined today with Steve Hawley. We know him from Days at Westland, but Mm -hmm. he is also the president of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. I was not running the acronym through my head as I said that, Steve. Did I get everything right? You did. In fact, you didn't even say the acronym. So we can just skip acronyms altogether this this session. Asimov. Yeah. Okay. So you are president of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. Henceforth, the commission, yes. Oh, right, just the commission. I like that. But the last time we spoke with you, we've had you on One Nation Under Whiskey quite a fair bit, but the last time we spoke with you, it was the judgment of Westland, and you were chastising us for trying (laughs) to guess regions instead of just deciding whether we liked the damn whiskey or not. Do you remember chastising us? Uh, I do, and I I would just like to say, first of all, thanks for having me back. Great to be with you, fellas. <laughs> and also for the listeners, um, just to ensure uh, that they know that there'll be more chastising today. So, all yes, right. of, of course I remember, and it's one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> That's beauty. I... But not enough of our guests chastise us, Josh. I would agree. I would agree. 
<laughs> I wore my Spanx just for the occasion. <laughs> That's what that is. So, before we get to all things American single malt, I just wanted to bring the listener up to speed with this, this move that you are no longer with Westland and we have really only known you in the Westland capacity. I think we've known each other eight years? More than that. More than that. Yeah, it's it's not 2012. Josh always wants to go to 2012. I don't think it was 2012. I think it was 2013 that we first met you. And that was all things Westland. Uh, Maybe the first time we met in person, but certainly not the first time we were in touch. I'd, I'd like to say we're going on the decade here. Yeah. yeah. Mm, we, we've had this conversation before. I don't think it's quite a decade. Actually, well, it certainly we seems like the a archives. You know, it certainly <laughs> seems like a this, long time. This part of the conversation feels like a decade. So, <laughs> with that laid to rest, you're you're not Mr. Westland. You've moved on. Um, no, no. Bring longer, us up to speed, Steve. No longer Mr. Westland, and moved on uh, in every sense of the word because I'm now sitting in California which is uh, a good ways away from the, the rains of Scotland and the rains of <laughs> Seattle. So You're not even wearing flannel. That, that's not the even most wearing striking flannel. Thing. I haven't worn flannel or pants in <laughs> two and a half months that I've been here. So California... If you could remain seated for this interview. I promise to do that. But yeah, uh, California Steve is still taking shape. I'm not quite sure how to be a Californian yet, but I'm on my way. And there's some kind folks here in the East Bay of San Francisco, which is where my new home is, uh, helping me acclimate and, and adopt new customs. So... Yeah, uh, flannels are not part of the custom here, but I might be starting a new trend. You know, you never know. Because uh, I, I, I have invested heavily in flannels, so, you know. You know. I mean, I'm not just going to throw the whole wardrobe out. But, um, yeah, I'm down here in California, in the East Bay, like I said. Uh, I came here, uh, as any uh, gentleman usually does, to, to follow a woman, my wife. Um, to be clear, appreciate the clarification. Um, Glad you you clarified. Uh, she, she got a job at the beginning of the pandemic actually. And we, uh, signed up for the move then and that never really happened. And then, you know, a few months ago they called and they said, yeah, it's, it's time. So here we are in California, um, with the family and, um, yeah, often new pursuits. Uh, lots of things in the whiskey world, and quite honestly, the the role that I have at the commission has been keeping me quite busy, as I know we'll talk about. Indeed, and, and certainly this is a, a busy period for the commission, as we will talk about. I do have, I have one Westland-related question of before course. we do move on to all things American Single Malt. You were there for 12 years, if I remember correctly. That sounds about right, depending on about when you decide we start... We started that company, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know March 31 was your last day. What was April 1 like? Wow. After How, how did you know my last day? Away? Have you been talking to Remy HR? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Often. <laughs> you should hear what they have to they say. They still don't want to give you a job, huh, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> and I, 
you know, to my own detriment, I always say, but I know Steve Hawley. It's at that point yeah. that they hang up. Yeah. I think wow. that's the mistake I keep yeah. making. That makes sense. Um, um, so, so just what's it, what's it like? You, you lived and breathed Westland for that time. I did. Um, it was it was weird. You know, it, it was certainly bittersweet. You know, we started that, like you said, about 12 years ago. And, you know, it's my whole identity has been wrapped up in it for a long time. So, yeah. you know, we sold the company in 2017. So, you know, it was not our business anymore. Um, but it certainly was, you know, my baby uh, in a lot of ways. So it was very difficult to step away from it. Um, you know, change for anyone is challenging, but change when you have, you know, such a kind of deep-seated connection to something is tough, you know. So yeah. it was scary to some extent to walk away from it. Um, I know that it was in good hands when I did, uh, and I know it's going to continue to do great things, so that helps a little bit. But sure, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of melancholy, I guess, on April 1st. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, not least of which because we didn't do an April 1st, uh, April Fool's Day gag. So um, I, I thought you were potentially running the worst one so yeah, far, that, which was you left the company. <laughs> that was really commitment to the bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that, that was not an April Fool's Day joke. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had my sights set on some other things in the whiskey business. My personal situation uh, changed, and it just seemed like a natural time to to yeah. to make that change and to, and to look towards other things. And, you know, certainly the work with the commission is keeping me inspired, and certainly the, the world of whiskey is... Um, not short of inspiration. So there's lots of things that are rattling around in my head that I want to do. And, um, you know, there's uh, an opportunity to do some of those things. So off I went. Nice, nice, nice. So let's yeah. tie two threads together and then we can start bringing Joshua into this. I was going to say, is Joshua well? allowed to say anything in this or no? <laughs> I, I've walled them off for the moment, but this this is my final piece of setup, and then we'll we'll jump into I'm the conversation. Waiting patiently in the corner for my turn. I have my well, ticket. I, you know, the chastising is a lot easier after Joshua says something. <laughs> <laughs> he tends to open the door so, for us, you know. So, so two threads here. So obviously, we want to talk about American single malt whiskey and the commission, but you started that at Westland. Mm -hmm. Six years ago, mm. what was going on that that you all broke ground on this idea? And and were there other distillers that you broke ground with? Can you take us back that six years and, and tell us how this came about? Of course. It's it's great to have a, a semblance of distance here from Westland because now I can sing the praises of Westland and their role in doing this without feeling <laughs> like I'm just tuning my own horn. Um, but the truth is it was Wesson, you know, we, and it's, it's not as romantic a story, I think, as you might be hoping for, but it, it was really, you know, uh, birthed out of conversations in the boardroom. You know, we were sitting around a table and we were trying to get a brand and a business off the ground and recognizing how difficult it was to sell to the world something that doesn't, doesn't exist, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, and we realized that, you know, 
in the absence of a formal category, it just makes the job a lot harder in educating consumers about what we're doing and convincing them to part ways with their dollars, etc. So it quickly became apparent to us that you know, we had to create the category in a way in order to be successful within it. Um, mm, yeah. We also recognized right away that rising tides lifts all boats and it wasn't going to be a Westland only thing, you know, and that we had to get other distilleries involved. So that's what we did. We wrote some emails. We reached out to folks and said, we're thinking this is an important thing to, to do. If anybody agrees with us, we'll be in Chicago in March 2016 come join us. And we, we uh, reached out to our good friend, uh, Brett at Binney's, uh, who is gracious mm -hmm. enough to give us a place to meet. Um, oh, and that's what we did. So yeah, it was really a business focused, you know, thought process. Um, it was something that had to be done and, and it's kind of grown and blossomed from there. So that was March of 2016. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, a long time ago, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. I mean, think of all the things that have happened since since yeah. March of 2016. Well, let's let's not go through the list, but yeah, a lot. So one, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> Fletch <but> reboot. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing that's been sort of niggling in my head is that pri prior to March 2016 where you got together and, and you wanted to put together this commission to create a category that is American single malt whiskey. There was a category simply called single malt, which is vastly different from what we know of as Scottish single malt or Irish single malt or insert country here that produces something that's called single malt where you're working with 100% barley. Um, you know, the, the way it's listed now, it's 51% barley, and then you can add in, you know, your various flavoring grains and, and so on and so forth. So did you, as you were getting together to look at this idea of creating a new category, did you use this previous category as a jumping off point or as something to potentially fix and then came into this idea of, well, maybe we should have two different categories? How did all of that look as you were putting this together? The answer is no, because it's not single malt right now. It's simply malt whiskey. So oh, it's single malt is not whiskey. Ah, yes. thank you. Okay. As you know, I'm an avid listener of, yep. Yep. of the podcast, yep. and I was in my garage uh, working on assembling a shelf, listening to my two good friends wax poetic about American <laughs> single malt whiskey, and I stopped in my tracks and texted you. Uh, oh, yes. Because you chastised there were two us, you bet. We chastised. Yeah, I chastised you via text, which isn't nearly as fun. <laughs> <laughs> two things stood out to me there. One was the confusion over the malt whiskey type. So within the U.S. regulations for spirits and whiskey, the class is called whiskey. And within that class, there are a number of different types of whiskey, whether that be bourbon or rye or in this case, malt whiskey, which mm. you, you did characterize accurately, Joshua, is made from at least 51% malted barley and then other grains can be added to that. That is called malt. Uh, the word single is not included in there anywhere. Um, okay. The only single malt 
whiskey that is currently in the regulations is a reciprocal agreement to recognize Scotch single malt whiskey hmm. or Scotch whiskey broadly, and within their regulations, single malt is is duly defined, right? Yeah. So, malt whiskey existed uh, well before we sat down to do it. It existed when we sat down to do this. It exists now, and in our opinion, it should continue to exist. The way we see the world of regulations is all of it is for the benefit of the consumer. And in our minds, the more detail, the better. So, mm -hmm. we want there to be a malt whiskey category. Now, granted, there's not very many people using that type of whiskey. No. Um, I can think of one. Um, so it's not a very popular type of whiskey to, to uh, be produced in this country. Um, but we believe that if someone wants to make it that way, then it should exist and it should be clarified what exactly it is for the consumer. So when we sat down to do this, we were entirely talking about creating a new category, a new type within the federal mm -hmm. regulations, a new type that detailed and defined what single malt whiskey means in this country. So no, we weren't trying to evolve the malt whiskey category mm -hmm. or type or change it in any way. We were trying to add to the class of whiskey with a new type, American single malt. Okay. So, so in this instance here, okay, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. In the, in the, the term single malt used in Scotland and elsewhere, the single refers to the fact that it's produced at one distillery. The malt refers to the fact that they're using 100% malted barley. In Correct. this case, it almost seems as if the word single is pulling double duty because I know one of the stipulations is it should all be done at, at, at one distillery, but then mm -hmm. also it's 100% barley. Am I correct in, in all that? Um, I wouldn't characterize it that way. The single okay. means single distillery. Um, okay. distilled, distilled at one distillery. That's what the single means to us. That's what it means okay. to the Scottish. That's what it means to everybody around the world. Malt oh, okay. means 100 percent malt, malted barley. Now there's, uh, an ongoing question, uh, and debate over whether the U S should widen that to mean any malted grain. And our position mm. is firmly no, that it should not. That's very important and that's very fundamental. It's important that we are in line with the expectations, again, consumers have worldwide for what single malt means. And now we're getting into actual words strung together side by side. <laughs> single malt whiskey needs yeah. to mean 100% malted barley. Should somebody be able to make 100% malted rye whiskey? Absolutely. Are we in favor of someone saying American single malt rye whiskey? Yes, we are. As long as okay. that is qualified and clarified for folks. Okay? okay? So when it's left on its own, the words single malt whiskey needs to mean 100% malted barley. Just like when you say malt whiskey, it is presumed and defined in the United States as malted barley. That 51% needs to be malted barley. That's what malt means. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people are clamoring. I wouldn't say a lot of people. Let's say there are a <laughs> few people out there that are saying, hey, let's be more open-ended. Let's leave it, leave more room 
to do malted rye, malted wheat, etc., other malted grains. Um, that's confusing the fact for consumers all over the world. When you say single malt whiskey, it needs to mean 100% malted barley. That's what it means around the world. If you want yeah. to addend that with a specific grain, we're all for it. You know, we're all for you making it that way, and we're all for you putting it on a label as long as it stipulates the grain. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I just I wanted to to sort of wrap my head around that and understand what the the delineation was. So yeah. the the idea is is not to eliminate that old category, but these two categories will live in tandem. Correct. And and then the idea is if if you're if a producer wants to use a grain that isn't barley but wants to malt it, it needs to be included in the in the overall nomenclature. Single in malt the name. rye whiskey. Yeah, okay. Exactly. In the name that's that's printed on the label. Uh, okay. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Okay. Jason, is this a good time? Did you get through all your questions? Because there's one where you backed up. Well. And then I don't know if you came forward again to ask. All right, let, all right, thank you. Let, let, Joshua, let I've never known you to be shy about I know, asking a I know. Well, You're going to get chastised either way, so. <laughs> I, I want to make sure that the delineation is clear, right? Because when I, when I suggested that the word single may be pulling double duty, you're, mm-hmm. you're saying no, single malt means 100% barley, but the single in single malt also refers to a single distillery. And so I guess my, my point is, if you remove that word single, you... How am I trying to frame this question? If you remove the word single, then yeah. you're falling into the existing malt whiskey type, which yeah. only requires 51% malted barley. And this is why I asked the question, is the word single pulling double duty? Because as soon as you throw the word single in front of malt whiskey, it's now saying two things. It's produced at one distillery, and it's 100% malted barley. Well, I, again, I think that we're we're kind of getting caught up in yeah no in I know the this nuance of it because yeah, you could say yeah. the same thing about Scotch whiskey, right? And you know the intention of the regulation is to stipulate single distillery. Let's take mm-hmm. Westland for instance, which I can still speak to with some level of knowledge. Um, <laughs> You know, a lot of people say, well, does that mean you can only use one type of malted barley? And the answer is no. You can use, in Westland's case, their flagship product is using five different types of malted barleys. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, and you can can choose to see it that way as far as what does the word single mean or not. I think the, the, the common understanding is... Uh, related to the regulatory intention, which is single means a single distillery. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. Jason? Were you beginning to suggest there, Joshua, that we might go to Seabassy's email? That that was my Ooh. suggestion, right? You it's guys C- have an email in the pocket have here? An email. Been yeah, we do. Waiting to drop? Okay. <laughs> That's what I was going to end off. You yeah. may have just spoken about a lot of it, but I just want to read through it and see if we've answered all of it. Just again, for the listeners, I I requested a preamble to the discussion here and I was flatly denied one. Uh, Nobody gets that, that, Steve. Nobody. Yeah, right. Dave doesn't get the preamble. 
Come on. He doesn't. No, he no. does not. No, he doesn't. Do you know who? Do you know? I tell you, one person got a preamble one time. Georgie Crawford. Oh, that's well, true. Why? Why does Georgie get one, and the rest of us don't? Ex Diageo, she was still <laughs> learning the. You know. I'm ex Remy. The, all right let me read this email so christopher sebastian our beloved sea bass writes in hi j and j i know better than to try and order you all by now Uh, thanks so much for the recording of the tasting last week a lot of fun i was glad to be able to listen even though i was sad to miss it live so a question for you gentlemen related to the single malt legislation up for comment now Josh and I got this email and we said, we will save this for when we speak to Steve mm-hmm. Holly. Seabass writes, I was having a conversation with a representative for a maker, a maker of a certain 100% malted rye. No names. He said that they are making a concerted effort to push back against the new standard of identity for American single malt whiskey claiming that they think that if you use 100% of any malted grain, it should qualify as a single malt. He was also claiming it restricted innovation, which is why I wanted to put this question before you, Steve. Mm -hmm. He was also claiming it restricted innovation, which is a whole different conversation, one we're happy to go down. Of course, we know what single malt means in the rest of the world. But there's a part of me that wonders about this, especially with the historical roots of rye in the US. Help a myopic American out. (laughs) Should the simple words, quote unquote, single malt, hold primacy regardless of grain? And then what are your thoughts? And we don't need to get into that. We've got the president of the ASMWC here. What are your thoughts on that, Steve? And I know you touched part of that question earlier in our conversation. Sure. Yeah, to some extent asked and answered. I think that again, you know, there's this there's this push and pull of creativity and innovation and let's not limit ourselves. Um, but conversely, there's let's not put ourselves as American distillers and as a category at a distinct disadvantage globally when it comes to what consumers understand and expect these mm-hmm. words to mean, right? So, again, across the world, single malt whiskey means 100% malted barley. There's no reason that you can't make malted rye whiskey, malted wheat whiskey, if you want to addend that nomenclature with the, the specificity of the grain. Everybody should be for that. Um, but single right. malt whiskey in, you know, Australia means 100% malted barley. You know, uh, we're not just talking Scotland here. We're talking all over the world. And again, most importantly, we're talking about consumer expectations and understanding. We need to meet that and we need to give our distillers the opportunity to compete globally um, and not put ourselves at a disadvantage. So what's that disadvantage? One is simply confuse confusion, right? We don't want to confuse uh, distillers. But, you know, within the framework of all this stuff and some of the other questions that kind of touch on creativity and innovation. The other thing that we must consider is not giving an opportunity through our own kind of, um, how would I say this, through our own eagerness to be unique and different, um, Mm. 
give other regions an opportunity, not even other regions, but other types of whiskey, let's say bourbon, for example, you know, um, we don't want to give other people ammunition for saying, well, you should look at American single malt with a suspect eye, right? Because you're not sure what's in that bottle. You know, all of this, mm -hmm. the whole effort here, the whole point is to bring clarity to what's in the bottle, right? And we need to recognize what single malt whiskey means globally, and we need to meet that expectation. Now, within the guidelines for American single malt whiskey, we believe as a group, and that group is 100 plus distillers in this country, wow. you know, we believe there is lifetimes uh, of ideas to explore within what the framework of single malt whiskey means. We think there is ample opportunity for regional character to emerge, not only from America, but even within America, of course. You know, we will be ge geographically, you know, aside from the Chinese who are also getting in the game, by the way, you know, geographically and certainly from a climate standpoint, a cultural standpoint, you know, we are an enormous country. I mean, compared to how many Scotlands can fit inside of Texas? I mean, there's, there's, just, there, there's just an immense amount of opportunity to look at single malt whiskey, which has quite frankly largely been, this is my Westland hat now I'm putting back on. Um, can't I can't shed it too easily. I thought it looked yeah, familiar. It, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? But he's putting you know, a flannel on now too. Look uh, at him. Yeah. Excuse me while I take my shirt off. Um, you know the, you know the the plain truth of it is, you know, single malt whiskey is slow to evolve uh, because mm. it hasn't needed to. You know, it is particularly in in boom times that we're in now. You know, Scotch whiskey distilleries don't have a ton of motivation or incentive to change the formula or to explore further because they're having a tough time keeping up with demand and they're making great whiskey, right? Um, here in America, we have the opportunity to say, look, a lot of these things, I talked about different, you know, um, roast levels in, in the barley, for instance, a, a minute ago. Um, there's there's a world of opportunity to explore even within what single malt whiskey is defined to be. So I think that, you know, the, the idea that we're hamstringing ourselves and not, not giving our, our category an opportunity to be, to innovate or be creative, I think is, is a pretty a hollow argument because there's lots of room to explore. There's lots of room to innovate and we can do so without trying to confuse the world by changing the definition of what single malt whiskey means, which at its core is 100% malted barley distilled at one distillery and made in this country, right? So pretty darn simple and hard to refute, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I thought the the use of innovation within Seabass's question was interesting because we've known so many industry friends in Scotland who feel that the SWA, the Scotch Whiskey Association, by defining Scotch whiskey a particular way is hamstringing innovation. And some of them have looked over to the US and other countries and said, but look what they can do with barley and wood and maturation and location and 
look, look what's available to them. And then as you come along as the commission and think about, okay, how do we define what we do here? How do we categorize this? It's interesting to hear the innovation issue come round again when you're saying, but we're not curtailing anything here. Yeah, I, I think, look, there's, there's two things to be said here. One is that I would argue that the lack of innovation coming from old world regions and I'll leave it at that, is more <laughs> is more a matter of tradition than it is regulation. Yeah. So I would say that first. Um, and then second, I do think it's fair for the world at large to say, all right, as new regions are uh, putting a definition to single malt, you know, we're not the only ones. The English are doing it. Uh, the Japanese are in the process of doing it. We're in the process mm -hmm. of doing it. Is it fair to say that we can move things forward in a way and and not hamstring the way perhaps it might have been in the past? I think mm. it's fair to do that, but there's a line. And who's to say where that line is drawn? And I think that line should be drawn at kind of those three fundamental things that define single malt whiskey. Now, are, are we doing are we leaving some other things behind? Yeah. We talk a lot about minimum age statement requirements around here, and that's a whole other topic that I'm sure you guys are chomping at the bit to get into. Um, we talk about the pot still requirement, which is another thing that we've left behind from Scottish um, regulations. And again, we can speak to the specifics of that as well. Um, you talk about the oak limitations. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on Scotch whiskey regulations, but it seems like I remember a few years ago when they said tequila casts are now um, allowable and everybody's singing from the, you know, the rooftops about that. And we all got a, a pretty big chuckle about that. That like, why is that a big deal? Let them do that. So, um, yeah, I think we we are a little more lenient in some of the, the smaller nu nuances that don't um, impact the core fundamental definition of what single malt is and should continue to be. Um, so I, again, I think there's plenty of room for creativity and innovation and that is, there's, there's a lot of choices that distillers can make in the distillery, um, to pursue those within the context and the structure of what single malt whiskey is. If you want to make something different, nobody's saying you can't. All we're saying is that you have to call it what it is, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. If, if you want to make single malt rye whiskey, make single malt rye whiskey. Guess what? If it's good, I'll buy it and drink it and maybe share it with Joshua and Jason. Depends on how much I like it. Um, <laughs> but I'm, you can how much we need but I'm usually a generous you know, share, share of whiskey. Um, and Jason, you're the only one that ever comes out to California, so you'll probably... That's because share, I'm not allowed. Me, I've been disallowed. Not allowed. <laughs> Jason keeps. He, I don't know what you he did. Keeps, but. He keeps California is, all to himself. All to himself. This has taken on such a wonderful <laughs> life of its own. But now, now you're closer to San Francisco, and we've got you know warehousing right oh, there. Yeah, so yeah. there um, you go. I, I so again, wanna, I, 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 th I think that it. a lot of people are pointing to what we're doing. They're saying, "Well, you're trying to tell people they can't make something." No, we're not. Please make whatever you want to make. You know, yeah. it, you know, explore whatever you want to explore, but there's repercussions to just what you can name something when you do that exploration. And if you yeah. want something in the regulations that fit what you're making because it doesn't exist, 
do what we did. We were making something that didn't exist. Now we were making something that had, you know, a 500 year old tradition in the world. So we had a place to start from. But even if you have no place historically to start from and you want to create something new and you want the government to recognize it, give me a call. I can tell you what we went through and hopefully you can probably do it quicker and better than we did. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just because we're trying to create something doesn't mean we're trying to preclude anybody from making anything that they want to make. I want to put a pin in regionality because I think that's a, a very fun part of this conversation. But before we get there, I, I do want to bring up something that we covered in Extra Extra that I've also had some conversations with, with a couple other single malt producers in this country. Jason, please don't tell which, me it's the whiskey with an E or not an E topic. That was my, I'm not that was my that. second I, thing. You guys go on and on about we're going to keep this a tight 30. And then at minute 29, Joshua says, well, is it whiskey with an E or not an E? And that, you know, 20 <laughs> minutes later, you guys, you guys were finished with that one. You know, it's, it's, I've, I've got Joshua to ask you that question in <laughs> about three it. minutes. But I know the proper answer. I don't know if I'll get oh, the proper okay. answer, but I know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, actually, mine, mine is, is with the adjuncts. Because mm -hmm. I know when we saw that attached to the TTB offering ahead of the comment period, <laughs> you know, one of the things that drives me crazy is that in Scotland we're allowed to add caramel colouring and not declare it. I, I, I'm mm -hmm. very much on board with you. You know, if it's in the regulations, go ahead and, and add it, but say that it's there. You know, let the consumer know that mm -hmm. it's there and we're not just looking at cask influence, right? And I have grown into that position with maturity. Um, <laughs> but but I thought for, for American single malt, here you are on this precipice and adjuncts are being mm -hmm. discussed. And, and we did have a, a point of clarity that we did include in a, in a, a follow-up episode of Extra Extra. But with you on the podcast today, I want to give you a chance to talk to that and, and how that aspect came about and, and how does it fit with the overall, overall process of putting something through the TTB? Well, I would... I would expand adjuncts to a broader term, adulteration, which is kind of mm -hmm. what the TTB calls. And that's just kind of a grown up word. You're speaking about maturity. Let's be mature and use fancy words. Let's be mature. Okay. Um, so you've got within the topic of adulteration, you've got coloring, flavoring, and what's called, quote, blending materials. Mm -hmm. So. This is a complicated one, and I'll try and get through it the best I can without confusing the heck out of it. But what we're petitioning for and what we have been petitioning for is what's called a standard of identity. It establishes a type within the federal regulations under the class of whiskey. So that type is defined by the six clauses that we have in our definition that we've been talking about at length that anybody can see on our website and in the TTB's uh, proposal. Mm -hmm. Now, outside of that, um, covered in a separate area of what's called the beverage alcohol manual is the topic of adulteration. Um, whether you can add flavoring, uh, coloring, uh, 
blending materials um, and a whole new set of rules that come with the allowance of that. So we're kind of on two different conversations here. Uh, one is the petition for a standard of identity and the second one is how the adulteration topic um, applies to that standard of identity, if that makes sense. Sure, So absolutely. the standard or let's say the default is to allow these things. Almost everything um, in the regulations do allow these things with the exception of two types. One is bourbon. Bourbon prohibits all of these things. Uh, the second one is anything called straight whiskey. Okay, any straight designation prohibits these things as well. So what the TTB did in their proposal, which is savvy on their part, is they simply asked the question, should adulteration more broadly, um, and they didn't use that term, but should adulteration uh, be allowed for single malt whiskey? And now it's up for the public to comment on that. The interesting thing is, had they not asked that question, we might be in a world of hurt because comments may come may have come in related to adulteration uh, which would have caused us to go through this whole process all over again so another six i would years, say yeah, yeah well it's not six years but <laughs> <Hopefully> not, yeah <laughs> you know i'll i'll take the opportunity to say thank you to them for asking this question so the reality is at the close of the public comment period there will be a number of comments on it ours included and i'm happy to tell you our position in a second um there will be a number of comments on that. They've given themselves the opportunity to establish this new standard of identity with either option, allowing or prohibiting uh, adulteration. So again, coloring, flavoring, and blended materials. So with that said, you know, our membership is, is strongly in favor of prohibiting these things. We believe that that, again, puts our category um, on at least equal footing with bourbon. And again, we, we like to talk mm -hmm. about single malt whiskey, but again, getting back, getting our heads back into the boardroom, you know, there's no arguing that we're also competing as distilleries, as producers of single malt whiskey with other types of whiskey, including bourbon in particular in this country. And, and quite frankly, increasingly overseas as bourbon um, kind of mm -hmm. picks up in interest overseas you know, you're in France and you're a distributor and you're going to say, well, what are we going to bring in? People are uh, hot to trot on American whiskey. You know, well, maybe it shouldn't just be bourbon on your list of considerations. Maybe single malt should be as well. So a lot of implications mm -hmm. within that as far as what the legal meaning of single malt whiskey, but specifically to the topic of mm -hmm. adulteration, right? We, d we believe as a group, that prohibiting these things is good for the consumer, um, brings more clarity to the consumer, does not inhibit creativity or innovation, as some would argue, and again, allows us to compete on a global stage with categories that do prohibit these things. Now, Scotch whiskey prohibits these things largely except for the caramel coloring, or as Jason would say, caramel coloring. Um, <laughs> Joshua, I'd be interested in your pronunciation of the word. It's a uh, charmel. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, 
<laughs> so, you know, again, I, I kind of mentioned this before, but, you know, there's a risk of other categories or other people with other horses in the race being able to point at American single malt whiskey and say, ah, look at that with a careful eye. You should be suspect of anything that says American single mm -hmm. malt whiskey because it could have all kinds of things in it that you don't know about or don't want to. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so I think that's really the, the kind of strongest argument for our desire to prohibit it. I will say my nightmare would be that this topic derails the process of ratifying a standard of identity. I, I want that standard of identity to go through as quickly as possible um, after the public comment period. And if that means that these things are allowable, I can live with that. I can tell you that as a group, we, we would then petition subsequently to have it prohibited. And you can do that as a separate process. Uh, so I, I would rather have a standard of identity in place for American single malt whiskey and have to go back and spend the next two years petitioning to remove the mm. allowable adulteration than to not have it at all, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the ideal situation is, you know, by the end of this year, we have a standard of identity and associated with that standard of identity is a prohibition on adulteration. The challenge becomes, I'm getting real nerdy here, but you guys are shaking your heads and sounds oh, yeah. like you want, sounds right like place, you want me Steve, to keep going. Friends. Um, Please keep and there's going. no tight 30 we need to worry about here. Um, <laughs> but so if, if you look into, you know, the deep, dark underbelly of, of regulations and, and dig out, I can even tell you the, the number of it for those that, that want to go look at it in the, in the CFR. But if you look at the guidelines that come with adulteration, um, there are two terms in there uh, that TTB will use as kind of the rubric for assessing what is mm. kosher or not. One is, well, I shouldn't use that on this podcast, <laughs> should I? What is, uh, what is um, valid or not, I should say. Um, yeah, we don't want to go into that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's American single malt kosher by yeah. nature. Has anyone so, ruled on this? Um, they use the term customarily employed or essential component. So when they're assessing whether what you're doing, so this is all under the context of if these things are allowable, you still can't just do whatever you want. You still have to follow a set of guidelines. And those guidelines can be specific. In the case of cognac, they are actually quite specific in the special reasons, I think, or special allowances or something like that. Okay. But there are also general rules. So like you can't have more than two and a half percent of, of uh, coloring. I think it has to be harmless, of course, those, kind of, those types of things. So the way they uh, evaluate these things is by returning to these terms, which of course are kind of up for interpretation, right? One is customarily employed. Is it customarily employed in the making of single malt whiskey? Um, or the other one, is it a an essential component? It is, a, is it essential to making single malt yeah. whiskey? So this is where my big fear is that we try and open up this can of worms, right? And we open up this debate as, as to what's customary and what's not customary. 
Mm. I'd much rather do that in a separate petition if necessary. I'd rather not have to yeah. go through it at all. And, and for them to just prohibit it um, with the ratification of the standard of identity. But what I don't want to do is wait, to have the standard of identity have to wait as we untangle what is customary or not. In my mind, and this is just a personal opinion, the only thing that you could argue is actually a customarily employed practice would be caramel coloring. Because another region has established that over a long period of time. Yeah, there are a lot of other things where people are raising their hands saying, well, should we allow this and then not allow that? And should we allow this and not allow that? Um, I don't know how that, frankly, gets adjudicated and who gets to decide what's customary and, who, and what's not customary. At the very least, it sounds like it's a very long it. conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather, you know, and on top of that, aside from cognac, Honestly, there's no other real precedent in American regulation for getting as nuanced as that. It's either cut and dry with bourbon. It's either allowed or it's not allowed. With bourbon, it's not allowed, you know? So I I just don't know how you get through that process. Um, And who gets to choose what's allowed and what's not allowed? So so when do you find that out when the the period is over and then you have to see if you've got a carry on with it and, and answer some of these deeper questions? Yeah, we find that out when the TTB uh, issues its final ruling. So yeah. what's going to happen, the, the process here is actually quite short. This is great because in the past few years, I've been having to explain the entire process, which is many steps long. And now there's only two steps left. One is, <laughs> one is the public comment period, which closes on the 27th of this month, assuming that you're going to be airing this, this in September of 22. Yes, um, we are indeed. And after that, the TTB takes all of those comments, it reviews them, it discusses them, and they make a final determination. Um, they don't put t- it through a randomizer? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're very thoughtful lot. They're very yeah, thoughtful okay, lot. Good. I will give them that. Um, so typically, from what I understand, that's around 30 days. That is not a written rule, but an unwritten rule. Um, But the length of that review process really depends on the volume of comments that they get and the nature of the comments. I can tell you, you know, we have 40 some odd comments in the register right now that I I watch daily. Um, Nothing that we've been talking about, nothing that is being brought up in the comments will be new to the TTB. Now they have to make some determinations. Mm-hmm. This adulteration topic is one. They have to decide whether to allow it or not. Um, but it's not a new question, right? We've been talking to them about these things for years. Um, they've been talking amongst themselves about these things. So I'm, you know, I say that because that leaves me hopeful that it will be a quicker process, not a longer process. Yeah. I would expect to see a final determination and hopefully a ratification of what they have proposed outside the adulteration thing um, by the top of November. I'd be happy if it happened by the end of the year. I'd be, yep. I'd be making a lot of phone calls if it took longer. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Is it just... 
American taxpayers who are allowed to comment or no. anybody with an internet connection around the world, could, in the world could weigh in on what they'd like to see? Anybody in the world with a pulse. That's remarkable. That remarkable. There you go. We have we have global listenership. Yeah. You know, if you'd if you'd like to see American single malt take a particular direction, you too can comment at the TTB. Yeah, I, I would ask that the best thing that that supporters out there can do is simply go on. The, so look, I have uh, three thousand six hundred and thirty-one words written in our response. Um, be nice to TTB and don't write 3,630 words. What you can do <laughs> is simply go on the Federal Register into the public, the public comment forum and simply say, we stand with the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission in urging the TTB to ratify a standard of identity um, according to their requests. It, it, it's as simple as that, you know, write a sentence or two, yeah. uh, and it matters. Everybody that says that matters. So, sure. Uh, but yeah, don't write 3,600 words. That's, that's my, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> so I, am I, am I allowed to have a question, Jason? I was just going to check one more box, which is something you and I discussed on Extra Extra. Oh, so he, go ahead. Yeah, so check he's going to ask your question for you. He, he feels yeah, there's that's a chance. You start, and if I have to stop you, I will. I'm going to give space after the question if you want to modify or qualify the question, Joshua, <laughs> to your liking. Yeah, yeah. If, if anything, make it a yes and. Uh, that would there be preferred. There you go. All right, a little improv. Go ahead. And so the, there's a reason I was asking about global input, and there was a reason that we mentioned the SWA and what they do and don't allow, and there was a comment previously from you about... There's the three-year-old age statement question kind of floating about. And there's a regionality question where climates are all going to be different. As a commission, you purposely didn't put a minimum age statement on this. Did you receive pressure from any other organization around the world? Yes, and to add to that, because I, I've been thinking about this, right? The, the fact that our geography is is vastly different. Our climates, we have, we have a host of climates that Scotland simply doesn't have. And so I wonder if there is a connection to no minimum age statement as it applies to, say, a Texas single malt producer, right? Or, or someone that's working in a very hot state something like that was that the reason for it or was it to just let it open and see what commenters may have to say so yeah is is the age statement tied to any type of regionality jason would you like to add any further qualification to the question or are you I, ready i'm i'm very happy i'm very happy with that yes and please good. Good. so there's two aspects to the minimum age requirement topic. One is a whiskey making conversation and the second is a regulatory one. I'm actually going to start with the second because the regulatory one is actually more germane to what we're talking about here than our various opinions about what should be a minimum age or if there should be a minimum age. Um, I have spoken to 
lots of people about this topic, including institutions, Jason. Um, <laughs> I would not use the word pressure uh, to their to everyone's credit that that is raising this topic. They understand where we're coming from, largely embrace it. Um, it's interesting. Some folks have a perspective that there should be a minimum age requirement, but it doesn't have to be three years. It can be less. So, you know, I don't understand why it's arbitrary, mm -hmm. but I, but I, I think I know where they're coming from. So, and that gets us back to the regulatory aspect of this. This is all about the consumers. I continue to say that again and again and again. Consumers should be the arbiters of quality and of what they like. They should vote with their dollars, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> An arbitrary minimum age requirement is not necessary if you are transparent about what you're doing. Federal regulations already have a method for requiring transparency. They give you an opportunity from a marketing perspective to champion your age if you want to pick straight whiskey as a path that requires minimum of two age, a minimum of two years of age. But even outside of that, anything that is matured less than four years has to be stipulated on the label in the United States. So and that we, will ring true with American single malt whiskey that it's absolutely. aged less than four years. It rings true oh, okay. for anything called American single malt whiskey right now. Okay. Okay. So TTB should not be approving any label that doesn't have um, that uh, age listed if it's under four years, okay. right? Yeah. Um, now, if you want to, if you're Jared in uh, Texas, who whom you brought up. Um, Jared and our good friends at Balcones, um, mm -hmm. if you want to export your whiskey and you think that your whiskey is ideal at two years because of the climate that you're contending with and you feel that it gets over-oaked if you go past that and you want to send that whiskey to the EU that does require a minimum age requirement uh, of three years, you're going to have to call it something else. Um, Hmm. That's a choice that you can make if you want to export it. We have to follow the rules of the place where you're going, right? The sure. rules, the rules yeah. here are: if it's under four years, it has to be mentioned or stated. Excuse me. So that's the regulatory reality. Um, there is no precedent in whiskey uh, regulations in this country for a minimum age requirement. That is not something we, as a group as we petitioned for single malt whiskey, um, thought was fair to install on one type of whiskey and not the others. Um, it would also be potentially a slippery slope for other types of whiskey in this country if the precedent was set with American single malt whiskey. Now, all that said, from a regulatory standpoint, Joshua, what you're talking about absolutely rings true. We are not in Scotland where Let's all agree that the that the climate from one end of that country to the other end is not all that different. Um, mm -hmm. Conversely, here in the United States, it is wildly different, wildly different. Um, and we shouldn't impose an arbitrary minimum age requirement for an entire country. That would be impractical. Um, and again, <laughs> you want to talk about freedom uh, of 
innovation and creativity, you know, to tell Jared in Texas that he has to age his whiskey for whatever in, I was talking to him the other day, he said they were going on like 47 days straight where it hasn't been under a hundred degrees <laughs> where oh, he lives. I mean, it's, it's, it's impractical, unfair to say that he has to abide yeah. by some arbitrary minimum age requirement. If customers don't like a young Texas whiskey, then they shouldn't buy it. As long as they know what's in the bottle, that's what's important. So yeah. that's where we stand both from a practical regulatory standpoint and from a whiskey making standpoint on the minimum age requirement. And guess what? The people that are, how should I say this? The people that are in countries that do have minimum age requirements mm. understand this point of view and also recognize that the way we deal with age requirements from a regulatory standpoint is different than the way mm. they might in another region. Mm. Okay, so that's good. That's useful. I like that answer, Steve. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad you like it. Makes sense, so though, doesn't it? It makes sense. It does. It does. It, yeah. it, it does. Um, but with regions in mind, do you, do you see a value in the U.S. incorporating some sort of regionality like Pacific Northwest American single malt whiskey, Texas single malt whiskey, etc.? I think I can answer that question as Steve, but I can't answer that question as the president of the commission. Um, I have a personal point of view, but even with our, within our ranks, I think people fall on different sides of this equation. I think that regional style, stylistic, regional kind of character is going to emerge in this country. That's my personal opinion. Um, I think that it's a very important that it emerge naturally and not be kind of fabricated by mm. the commission or any other central group of people. Um, again, frankly, I think that's kind of what happened in Scotland to a large degree because there's a marketing benefit to doing so. It all depends on, I, I think that it depends on the choices that people make regionally, right? So you mentioned the Pacific Northwest. If you want to choose the path of terroir-driven production and whiskey, and I don't want to get into that debate right now <laughs> um, over the word terroir, but if you want to choose... <laughs> a path of whiskey making that seeks to reflect a sense of place, then that's mm. great. And enough, if enough people in a region choose to do that, then there will be a regional style that emerges. But the nature of the whiskey industry right now, and you only have to look again to Scotland to see this, is that it's a globally commodity-driven business. You can make good uh, whiskey from materials that aren't necessarily local or and you can choose production processes that are not attempting to express um, regionality and you can do that wherever you are in the world um, you can get the barley from Poland if you want you can bring it over here you can use a yeast that was propagated somewhere else you can you know choose a a varietal of barley that's ubiquitous and on the com global commodity traded system you can do all of those things and make great whiskey and be wherever you want so 
I think it will emerge because I think more American distillers are interested in distinguishing themselves from a sense of place perspective. So for that reason, I think regions will emerge, but it's not an inevitability and it's not an absolute. Um, I think yeah. I think people are seeing the value in not only the end product but the ability to market it as distinct. Sure. So I think it'll emerge. I had a, a, a question that's not necessarily specific to this topic, but it, but I think about some of these smaller producers that are that are getting into malt and putting their malts out, and and I think back to say 10, 12 years ago when distilleries like uh, Hudson uh, were getting started. And they had a difficult time getting started because A, their bottles came out in 375s and B, it was expensive. Mm -hmm. But the, the 500 ml bottle is not legal, but I imagine if it were legal, it would allow a distillery to sell a bottle for around the same price as a 375, but give the consumer a bit more value, right? Because they're, they're getting a bit more liquid out of it. And I just wonder if, if that's ever a consideration, because part of this is to help American single malt grow, right? And part of helping American single malt producers grow is, is putting all of this in place. And I wonder if, if bottle consideration is ever something that would be considered Again, I realize this isn't specific to, to what you're doing with the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, but I wonder if it's sort of a if it's ever been discussed as an idea to boost American producers, giving them a, a different bottle format to work with. Yes, discussed at length, certainly amongst our ranks. Um, it's a process that's underway with TTB uh, to okay. loosen the format size restrictions. There are folks that again, come down on different sides of this topic, both for reasonable reasons. So we as a group have not formally commented on or did not formally comment on that. That comment period closed, I want to say it was last month. Um, but I could okay. be wrong. It could have been July. Um, but so that process is under consider, or that topic is under consideration at TTB. Again, you could argue that you have to look at it from both directions, right? So from a production standpoint, it's great, right? You even just take uh, global uh, distribution, right? To be able to bottle everything in 700s. So you don't have to have two different sets of glass, which creates yes. not only an expense, but complication and you know, uh, a lot of opportunity for error and all those kinds of things, which cost money. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good thing. Um, on the other hand, if you look at it from a different direction, you know, coming back at the distillery, even just domestically with distributors here now trying to find shelf space distributors and quite frankly, the trade the retailers trying mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. figure out how to accommodate an influx of different sizes or you know the opportunity for a large player to come in and say i'm going to take my flagship product and bottle it at four different sizes and go out to the marketplace and say well if you want anything else from me you have to take this and you have to take it in all four sizes and that starts squeezing out shelf space from other brands sure. it's complicated guys it really is complicated mm -hmm. um 
I will even admit that I don't have a personal conviction on this yet. I know I started in one place and I'm starting to, you know, at least give it more thought. And I can tell you from a, a commission standpoint, we have not yet aligned on what we all think is the right or wrong answer here. So okay. it's, it's, it's more complicated than it sounds, I guess, is, yeah. is the way. And for someone that's super slow like me, it might take you a little while to realize that there are valid points on the other side of the aisle yeah sure cheers I think that's I think that's fair you know especially the part about you being slow well, I think, I think you, you just you call, call it call it the way it is you know otherwise you're you're kidding you're kidding yourself <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen listen we're gonna get out of here but we're gonna ask you a, a different question than we normally ask mm-hmm. our guests to, to get us out of here as we said at the top of the interview last time we saw you it was the judgment of Westland mm-hmm. And I, th- I think you said the next time you were on the podcast, you would tell us the four distilleries <laughs> that yeah, we tasted. I remember that. Is, is this is this the grand reveal, or do you want to get out of here with one more chastisement? This is a tough one because I don't know if I'm more apt to tell you now because I don't work there anymore, or less apt to tell you now. I can't decide if I'd get in less trouble or more trouble. Um, I can tell you that I don't have the bank account to pay the attorney that I would have to <laughs> pay. Um, certainly, certainly would have had a, an easier time of it before when I worked for Remy if they decided to back me up and not just fire me outright and say, get your own lawyer. Hmm. I think I'm going to have to abstain, guys. I'm sorry. There is a gentleman who I know you are good friends with named Matt Hoffman, who you should really direct that question. Who still has, it, it's nice to be still able, has Remy it's money nice to be able to deflect. I, I'm almost positive that when you ask him the question, he will deflect it back onto me. And we can we can do this game of tennis yeah. for as long as you guys want, I suppose. <laughs> Another option is um, next time you have uh, Sam Simmons or Dave Broom on, you can ask them the same there question. There you go. I was just thinking about Dave Broom. So there you so go. So it's kind of like doubles yeah. tennis here. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always more exciting. See how Dave deflects us when we see him in November. Yeah. You know, it's actually, right. uh, I love doubles ping pong. Way more exciting. If you haven't done that, you should, you should give it a try. Doubles, doubles ping pong. Ping pong. Yeah, so you have to alternate shots, right? Yeah. So you have to kind of be, you know, maneuvering away from your partner a great deal. I, I feel like yeah. I feel like that could turn into a mosh pit really fast. That's why it's fun. That's right. It's fun. Yeah. There you go. See, see how <laughs> I've expertly gotten you away from your question and onto doubles ping pong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna leave the last word with Steve about swapping partners. So thank you ever so much, Steve. It's been a joy spending time with you today, and uh, appreciate your your honesty and your being candid. Indeed. You said September twenty seven is the closing date for the the comments period. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. So this okay. goes live mm-hmm. September twenty first. So Great. for anybody listening who wants to put their comments in they can go ahead to the ttb website and look for that open comment forum and say the good things let's get american single malt whiskey up and off the ground amen to that 
Awesome. Cheers, Steve. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks to Steve for his his time answering questions there. It's been an invaluable follow-up to some of the groundwork we've been laying in our our recent episodes of Extra Extra. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we were able to to cover some of that ground with him directly. Also, sincere thanks to Seabass for sending in his question that we were able to put directly in front of Steve as well. that was great. As I said in the interview, I'm curious to see where the the comments period ends up. I'm, I'm curious to see what we do end up with as our, our category designation here. Yeah. But one thing will remain true for us, which is this burgeoning regionality with American single malt yeah. whiskey. We don't, we don't need the TTB for that. We don't need a comments period for that. That's going to be consumer-driven, distillery-driven, and we're going to have plenty more conversations about American single malt regionality as the years turn to decades. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I, I don't know. I, I, I like the idea of having set regions that you can kind of hang your hat on not to say that the regions within Scotland as they are currently laid out are are anything you can lay your hat on but they're at least a starting point right and and that's while while we as american producers don't necessarily have to consult with the TTB on saying this is Indiana single malt or this is Washington single malt or what have you, or Pacific Northwest single malt. It would be nice if if they were laid down as, you know, so nice with Scotland, you have, you have five standard regions. Wouldn't it be nice to have something that just makes it simple for the consumer, which I, I realize it's not going to be simple on the outset. There's already questions in the comment period, but as this continues to grow, and given the fact that the U.S. is five billion times the size of Scotland and can have far more regions, it's not going to be as easy and straightforward, but I do hope we get to a place that allows for something slightly easier, slightly more straightforward, simply for the sake of the consumer to make some buying decisions. That's all. Oh, abs, abs. No, no. You, you and I are not saying different things here. We're, we're saying the same thing. I, I think it would be good for the consumer to know what it means to be a Texas malt, Uh, as you say, a Washington state or a Pacific Northwest malt. Um, But it's not to curtail innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's not to say, and that's all it can be, but instead, here are the broad strokes. Maybe here's the climate, here's the conditions, here's the sea. One of the things I loved reading about Ardna Merkin in Dave's book ah, okay. was this sense of the sea in Ardna Merkin, and they've never once been in pursuit of a seaside component. Yeah. And yet it's there, right? <laughs> right. And they're distilling and they're maturing and they're bottling uh, in in their Western 
yeah. part of yeah. Scotland. Yeah. And there's that little salinity creeping in around the edges. And it, and it's it's so interesting to have a whiskey maker say, that's not necessarily part of our design, but it is part of our geography. You know, yeah. here we are with, with Virginia, this subtropical summer climate that then gets snow in the winter, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yep. Okay, what does that do to your whiskey? At, at some point, you're not driving the whiskey, you're more adapting to where you make the whiskey. I w- and that's exact. I was just thinking that as you were as you were laying that out, that it it, it amazes me that you can have a, an idea for a distillery. You can either raise your own funds if if you have the money. Some some people don't. Most people don't. But you attract investors to invest in a distillery, knowing that you will not know what that spirit style will definitely be like until you're all set up and spirit is running and starts maturing. Like you'll have an idea of the spirit, but they weren't expecting the sea influence. That wasn't part of the story at yeah. Arden Merkin, yeah. and boom, there it is. And and so it really is interesting. It, it speaks, I think, to the importance of the people behind the stillery to attract those investors, to get it up and running. And, you, you know, if you think about Arden Merkin and the people behind it, you've, you've got Alex Bruce and Charlie McLean and the rest of the Adelphi selection team mm-hmm. behind that. Mm-hmm. And with Isle of Rasse, just bringing that up because we've mentioned it before, right? You've got Alistair mm-hmm. Day and his partner, I forget his first name, Steve Dobby, I think it is. Um, you know, and Alistair Day comes from, he's, he was the Tweeddale blend guy, right? So he, yep. he's, he's got Indeed. history behind him. So, you know, it just, it really is an, an interesting thing that there is a certain amount of leap of faith going on when it comes to <laughs> building these distilleries. <laughs> Question with you, just, just to bring our intro back to our outro all here. Right, all right. We talked about Scottish Oak and then we talked Gary Anna mm. going into the interview with Steve. Mm. Did you talk much about Chinkapin at Rassi? Ah, we, we most definitely did because, you know, the recipe is an unusual one. They, they don't use any bourbon barrels. None. Period. Zero. Zilch. At Rassi? At Rassi. Wowzers. They use rye casks, specifically rye casks. Then Indeed. they use virgin Chinkapin Oak. And and then they, which is also a, su- a sweeter oak, which is interesting because it, they use, it's toasted and there's a number four char. Hmm. And so I actually tasted a single cask while we were there. It was four years in wood and the color was, you know, it, it almost looked like a, a, a sherry cask or, or, you know, some really old bourbon, you know, s- super dark. Exclusively chinkapin for Exclusively the four years? Exclusively chinkapin. Okay, go on. The oak presence was massive but it lacked the astringency because it's a sweeter oak mm. yeah so so they use that and then they use so pause for a second yeah so when you say the oak influence was massive but there was no astringency what what were the qualities of that massive oak presence chocolate pepper uh, pep- it was very peppery so it's oh, okay. it's peppery like just true oak like you know you you smell oak it's the 
taste of the smell of oak, um, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, like if you were to somehow add chipotle spice to caramel, imagine something like that. Hmm. Right, you get this. It's almost like a warming spice, an earthier hmm. spice coming through, if you will. Wow, um, my mouth is literally watering. Yeah, it's exquisite. And then, and then they use uh, Bordeaux casks. I've seen that. Yeah, right? I've read that. I've tasted some of those back with Ian Robertson. Yeah, and and so and so they'll use, and that's that's for their standard recipe, right? I mean, they they do play around with other casks. I think they, I'm sure they do have bourbon barrels up there, but as far as their standard core products go, bourbon will never be a part of it. Rye is a prominent part of it. And so they'll take. Did they make the same declarative statement? It will never be a part. I'm sure. Never. They did. I'm sh- yes. I'm sure they did. Never. Listen, we're only human, Jason. We're not <laughs> gods like you. Um, and so they'll they'll take those three. I don't know who the we is you're talking about. <laughs> they'll take those three cask types, and then they they fill some with peated spirit and some with unpeated spirit, and they kind of make the whiskey from there. So yes. Yeah, so so. Y- I, to simply answer your question, yes, yes, we talked about the Chinca Pinocchio, and yes, I got to, I got to taste yes. it, and and it's, you know, it never at any point does it taste like bourbon, or does it taste mm-hmm. like rye, given the spicy element to it. Uh, but the oak is present, and I and I think that would be pleasing to a bourbon or rye palate as a single cask. Does it seem like it would be more of a component than it would be a, a single cask? Obviously, your mileage may vary. You know, some single casts might treat the spirit differently, even though it's still the same wood for maturation. But from what you were tasting, did you get the sense that this is a component, not a standalone single cask? Uh, For the single casks that we tasted, they all tasted like components. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, you can see the promise, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, if this cask just did didn't do this or if it just did this you know it i not to say that they lacked any sort of complexity it wasn't that it's just that in and of themselves there's a a certain intensity oh well, you know what let, let me back up a little bit i will tell you i tasted a peated bordeaux cask that that could have been like if they said hey single cast nation would you like to buy this cask from us i would say yes please and thank you and let's bottle it yesterday like it was just which fantastic. is wild, yeah. Because that was one of the aspects I was about to bring up a, a moment ago. When they've got Bordeaux red wine, mm. you and I are not no. particularly fans of nope. Scotch and red wine, and yet that was one that stood out as a potential single for you because it didn't. At no point in time did it taste like high octane wine, and and I'm starting to wonder because this is happening more and more, right? That we're tasting whiskey that was matured in wine casks, and we're finding examples where the whiskey is tasty, despite it, tasty tar palates, despite yeah. it being matured in the cask. And I'm wondering if it is a matter of we don't like whiskey finished in those casks, but the full-term maturation allows the whiskey to evolve in a different way with the wine or maybe allow the wine influence to evolve differently with the spirit. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's one of the conversations I've been having with Amanda and Brian at, at VDC, Virginia Distillery Company, mm. 
and, and again, you and I have been talking about this for a few years now about maturation being non-linear. And there are moments when you taste a wine cask and you go, nope, hard pass. <laughs> yep. And you revisit in two years and you go, oh, yes, now, now you've, now you've done it. Let, yeah. Let's go a little bit longer. And then you, you revisit some amount of time afterwards and you go, aha, mm. now you're doing. And yeah. so that, that could speak to your point of finishing three months, six months, you get the wine, but not the integration. Yeah. You know, because I, I know, and I'm not going to name the distillery because it's some, some internal samples that we've got, but there is a distillery that we've got samples from who have not finished in wine, but almost a double maturation. Yeah. Long-term nation members can fill in the gaps. And you have that spirit as it sat in bourbon before being moved over into wine, and you get a complete whiskey out of it. Mm, yeah. and, and that's kind of got me changing how I think about it. But I'm still, I'm still hesitant around port. I'm still hesitant around red wine. Still hesitant around Fino. Same, but I'm, I'm more open to it now. And oh, mm-hmm. speaking mm-hmm. of Fino, in a way, uh, the next step up is your, your Manzanilla, right? You're getting a little less dry. Uh, they had, they being Isle of Raze, had a few Manzanilla casks. That was some of the best rosé I, I had while we were there. That that was some remarkable whiskey. Light in color. So so you're not getting a ton of influence, right? Because, I mean, we can go deep into a conversation here. We don't have the time for that. But there's reasons why a manzanilla or a fino cast typically don't give a lot of color to the, to the wood. The color wasn't there, but the flavor was there in a remarkable way. It was really nice. No, we're going to have to pick the listeners up off the floor right now because not one single listener has ever imagined us using the phrase, we don't have time to go into not have time to go into the whole sherry thing which reminds me maybe we should we should have another sherry episode i think i think i think it's about time jason that you and i get back to hereth we we need to visit the home of sherry so we could simply to have another sherry episode but um while we don't have time to go into the details of why some sherry cast may or may not impart color we have to make time to share a bit of news with our listeners. And so I'm going to bring on the paper boy. I'm going to let him shout at us for a little bit. And then, Jason, <laughs> I'm going to hand the mic over to you so you can start sharing uh, a bit of news we got going on. Extra, extra, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, 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 read all about it. Me and that Playboy in trouble again. We spoke previously about releasing our. SCN US online MacMira on September 22nd. Correct. And we're going to change that up a little bit. We're going to push that out by seven days mm-hmm. because there's a very good chance we'll have some Kalila to put with it. Peated Isla Scotch single malt next to some. Mm-hmm. 
unpeated virgin oak Swedish malt. Beautifully stated. Oof. Beautifully Oof. stated. How exciting is that? It's super exciting because I started thinking, oh my gosh, what if we marry the two? What if we make a blended malt? Now I just, that's all I want to do. But it, but it is exciting. I don't want to speak out of school, but I've spent my entire weekend thinking about blended malts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the last time we did a Kalila online, was it our eight-year-old refill sherry or was it our 10-year-old refill bourbon? I believe it was the 10-year-old refill bourbon that we released at the same time as our third woodcut, which was our laughing frog. Ah, uh, yep, you are correct. And so so this one, do you want to talk about this one or shall I? No, no, go for yeah. it. Go for it. So this Kalila that that it does look like we'll be adding a few bottles to this, it was actually a club exclusive for the uh, Southern California Whiskey Club. Uh, who unfortunately use an E in their name. Huh? Jason, have you had a word with them before we... Anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm staying out of this. <laughs> <laughs> I jest, I jest. So, you know, it, it was a bigger cask, 280 bottles. We didn't think they would be taking on their full allocations. That's a lot of bottles. Yeah. Uh, but yep. we said, you take what you want slash need, and whatever's left, because we've done this before, whatever's left, we will sell on to our single cast nation members. And so it's an 11 year old from a refill bourbon hoggy, 58.3% alcohol on this one. Is there any, I see you've, you've tapped into yours. So do you have any fresh tasting notes you want to share <laughs> so, with listeners? So actually what, what you can see is the Macmillan oh. <laughs> in my hands. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I will tell you this though. I, I have tapped into that Kalila and if I can find the bottle on my floor here, did you tap that aspirational whiskey? Oh, Joshua. What did I do? Did I do something? Where, where am I? Yeah. Yeah, oh, I took a little. A little dabble, do you? Very clean, very fresh, very coastal, very bright. Um, Dave Broom describes Kalila as fresh salt on rocks. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, I like that. Yeah, like freshly washed sea rocks. Here, here's something I'm finding interesting about this. Um, so I'm not, we have our own notes, but I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at our flavometer. And here's mm-hmm. an interesting thing. It has a two for floral, which means there's a bit of florality going on there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. you step down and you look at the sweetness. The mm-hmm. sweet and the smoky are both seven out of ten. So a big sweetness followed by a big smoky quality. And then here's the other interesting thing, especially given this is a refill cask, meaning at least a third use cask, it, the richness on it is a five out of 10. That's a big rich whiskey, despite it not being in very active wood. So that tells me the spirit is doing some heavy lifting here. Yeah, I am... I'm often floored, and, and we have said this to so many people over the over the last decade plus, is not all refill casks are created equal. Yeah. And this is not created equal. There was still life in this wood. This is even even the color. 
right? As you hold it up, it's it's a nice pale gold, a reflective gold. Yeah. Oh. It's it's not washed out. It's not like water in there. The wood has imparted color. It has imparted a, a nice framing quality. Yeah. I'm, but but it's still yeah. spirit driven, right? It's still Kalila in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's funny, as you're mentioning that, I, I looked further down on the flavometer and saw that there is a five for oakiness. So, so it really mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. through. Again, the last time I mm-hmm. tasted this was when it was still in cask and you tasted the final example of it before bottling. So I'm gonna, I actually just took the, the tinfoil off. Oh. I'm going to take a little, little, little pull from the bottle, see what happens here. Yeah. I actually have our, our 10-year-old sitting right here. Oh, man. And, and the floral matches, the sweet is a little bit higher on the Southern California Whiskey Club okay. one. Richness is about the same. Nutty. Our, our 10-year-old is nuttier than the, the Southern California Whiskey Club one. Mm. Spicy. Theirs is a little, just a hair spicier. Earthy, theirs is a little earthier. Smoky, they're about the same. And oaky, theirs is a little more oaky as well. So they've got it dialed. They've got it dialed up a little bit there. The salinity on this is through the roof. There's a bit of spiciness going on there. Oh, this this is this is so interesting. This is different than what I remember. It tasting like when we first received the casks, and I know it sat in wood for for a few months oh, yeah. before we bottled it. Uh, it may have sat in in the cask for maybe a year before we bottled it. Yeah, I hadn't tasted it since you, you were the one to taste it right before bottling. This has evolved in a really wonderful way. I'm getting mm-hmm. green olives on this. That salty brininess coming through. Man. Yeah, it, it's a sister cask of the 10-year-old. And so uh, you can actually okay. see what that additional there year you has go. done. There you go. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, so do you have any other news? I did want to throw in just, just before, because I do want to continue talking cast. We did get a great, great question come in. But I just wanted to quickly, because we've been talking so much about wood in this episode... Yeah. Just to reiterate that the Macmira was 13 full years in a virgin oak hogshead. Yeah. And I think that's remarkable. And, and I think that lends another aspect to this Swedish single malt that I cannot recommend highly enough. It is formidable. And that's the one that you saw Jason's <laughs> put a bit of a dent in that yeah, bottle. Yeah. At, at 47.4, and I, I think I'm among friends on this podcast, but I haven't been drinking it, just, just a dram and then onto something else or a couple of drams and onto something else. I've I've quite happily poured this three drams at a time. And just after each one, just what is going on there how is that working yeah holy macaroni and then as as just covered in the interview with richard uh, of macmira there's the the bodice mine influence what does that mean within this whiskey and it's 
<laughs> I really am laughing at myself because I'm looking at how much I've destroyed this bottle. <laughs> yeah, I, like... hold up your bottle again. <laughs> hold on, hold up your bottle. I'm trying. I'm trying to keep it level with the camera so you can get a sense there. You Oi, and I have gone yours? through the same amount of, wi- <laughs> and I haven't shared this with you? anybody. <laughs> Me neither. I am. Like I'm not shocked that we've that we've each enjoyed it in our own way. I'm shocked that we're exactly the same amount through our bottle. Wow. Amazing. All right. Amazing. Wow. We still have to record that tasting video. Yeah, so we do. Yeah, we, we do. We better keep some of it. <laughs> With no other news to share, there was an email that I wanted to bring in, and it's actually sort of it's apropos to the conversation here, right? It fits with this episode um, yeah, so well. We're, yeah, we're talking about all these these different casks here and cast types and going to Hreth and getting sherry casks <laughs> and so on and so forth. And so we got this email from Tom Jodelka. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I pronounced okay. his last name right. Okay, Jodelka. If I didn't, I apologize, Tom. And the subject says, a further explanation of your serendipity. Ah, You know, the the interesting thing is, when this email came in, I was actually eyeballing serendipity because we were just (laughs) at the Glen Murray Distillery the day before this email came in. Uh And serendipity is three quarters Ardbeg and one quarter Glen Murray. So it had me thinking about it. And I was eyeballing maybe a bottle. Anyway, uh, but I didn't get one. I was very, very good. It says, Dear J&J, I hope this message smart. finds you well. Very smart. I was wondering if you'd be willing and able to share some more information regarding the serendipity that is cask number 312989, a.k.a. your nine-year-old Daluin that was initially aged in first fill bourbon and then accidentally placed into a first fill sherry cask. I enjoyed hearing of the story of how Jason misread the spreadsheet, and I even <laughs> further enjoyed the tasting notes. I was lucky enough to get a bottle and am eagerly anticipating its arrival. Hopefully he got it by now. Are we, st- are we still, as of the day of this podcast, are we still shipping out some Deluanes, Jason? We are. As of the day of release, we started shipping last week right on schedule. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with a full cask sellout, we're working our way through 240 bottles of it yeah. with with the Paul John sales on the side. Yeah. yeah. And we still, we, Dalyuan might be sold out, we still have peated Paul John on the website, uh, which uh, I encourage people to oh revisit gosh, as well. How is that still there? Oh my gosh. People should be drinking that right from their HDMI uh, output yep. on their computer. Yeah, that one's that one's going to grow. Our our Amrut back in the day never sold out no, either. True. Now it's one of the most sought after bottles we have. Yep. I think it's going to be a slow builder as people get it, share it. it you know, the interest builds. It's it's phenomenal. It, it brings. Anyway, that's not why we're here. Yeah, today. yeah it's not why we're there. Okay, cool. Yeah, I could have. <laughs> you opened a rabbit hole. I was about to jump down into it. Anyway, uh, he goes on and says, "I was lucky enough to get a bottle, and I'm eagerly anticipating its arrival." I mentioned that before. The story behind the whiskey, definitely not with an E. This is a parenthetical comment. I'm not some sort of an ogre, LOL. Oh, I love that. I love that. (laughs) Um, So the story behind this whiskey left me with several questions, and I was wondering Mm. if you'd be able to answer them 
in a tight three to five minutes, of course. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I, like I love how he did it. Like it's 35, exactly. but it's three yeah, exactly. dash very five. Smart. Yeah, very smart. Very smart. Uh, one, how did Jason make the mistake with the spreadsheet? Did he simply confuse uh, this cask with another? Was something else destined for the first Phil Sherry cask? That's a good question. So how, how am I answering these? Do you want to, are, are there a lot of these? Am I going to have to remember questions that I'm not going to remember? Do you, do you want me to answer t- them I'll, one by one? I'll tell you what. Do they I'll, build? Yeah, because, yes, I, I get it. As The older you get, the, the, the harder it is for you to retain things. Oh, um, absolutely. This so, is me doing my absolute best to remember your name. So, so John, I mean, Jason, um, what, <laughs> uh, so how did you make the mistake? What, what was the error? Well, I, I think... I think if you if you're from Jason's family or or you're you're Jason's good friend, a business partner, just the fact that I made a mistake, I think, is hard to get a head around. Right? <laughs> I think people are already shocked. So so a mistake with a with a cast. So the question is, how did I make that mistake? Yeah, like how how could you fuck this up? Is basically what it, that's that's the, the subtext that I'm reading. Yeah, Tom. Tom, I didn't hear that in your voice. I only heard that paraphrase in Joshua's voice. So, so very simply, we had purchased a rake of casks. They had come in from Spain. I was working with Jess on the spreadsheet, and just we were to clarify, to the rake of casks you're talking about were ex sherry casks. So, I just want to make exactly. sure we're we're delineating exactly. between where we're getting exactly. our casks and what casks they are. No, that's a good, good, good clarification. So, so we're working our way through, and this whiskey in this cask was going to go into this sherry cask. Uh, this one over here was going to go in that one. And as we worked through it, we had dedicated places where certain casks were going. Mm. And at the end of it, we had one cask left. The concern is you never want to leave them to dry. Yeah. Then you've then you've kind of wasted your money and we spent awfully good money yes, on these did. casks. Yep. And so with a quick scan of the list, I saw a Daluin mm. that could fill that last empty sherry cask, Hoggy. And and I made it so on the spreadsheet. And that was the request that went to our our bottling hall, our warehouse. Call it what you will. But my understanding is, because we, we had a few deluing casks, is that you simply requested the wrong deluing cask to go into that sherry cask because now this feeds in to what his second question will be, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess you kind of answered it. You know, there was a second part to question number one, which was, mm-hmm. was something else destined for this first Phil Sherry cask? Yes, Yes, and and obviously I you know I just lost track within the spreadsheet, but yeah, it was it was the other Dalian. Yeah, it was the other Dalian. Okay, so now his question is: What was actually supposed to happen to the Dalian whiskey? Was it only destined to be first fill bourbon? Was it supposed to age longer? What was it? What was it supposed to be? Yeah, I, I don't know if we're if we're giving too much away here but there there are some casks we've got that we're just simply watching and mm. and something in good wood that isn't getting too oaky certainly isn't getting astringent 
certainly isn't taking on too many of one type of quality and not enough of the other. It was just sitting there, just aging very nicely. Minding its own business, doing Minding nothing. its own business. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it was just a watch and see kind yeah. of cask. Yeah. Uh, we had other sisters that, that got moved or were bottled or what have you. Um, and so, yeah, this was just a wait and see. And uh, <laughs> and then it was plucked from obscurity. <laughs> so then he goes a little further. He says, how long did it take before you realized there was a mistake? And at that point, what did you decide to do? Oh, that's a great question. That's a really great question. I would say it was probably six months because we were working on a project that called for, believe it or not, the untouched Dalyuin. Yeah, yeah. And it was only in looking at the untouched Dalyuin that the question was asked, why is this one untouched? Did we touch another one? And it doesn't take long to go through the Dalyuin column yeah. to say... Okay, so the one, yes. And so at that point, and this this is absolutely the, the smart part of this question, at that moment it was get a sample ASAP mm. of this first fill bourbon that went into first fill sherry. ASAP. We need to know what we've got on our hands. Yeah, perfect. And, and you're segueing perfectly into his fourth I, question. I was going to say I could keep talking, but I don't know if it's going to be asked uh, next. So this one, I, let's see how much of it I, I, I read, Lou. Mm -hmm. So question four, how often were you able to taste the whiskey as it aged in the sherry cask? Did you taste it a mul multiple times over the 11 months of the unintended maturation? Or did, you f or did you finally, quote, get around to it after 11 months and get lucky? No, no. That was, once we tasted it at the six-month part, it was, we're moving on this ASAP. Yeah. This is not going to make it to a year. Yeah. We didn't need to taste more samples along the way. I think if, if memory serves, he said, reaching for the bottle, we bottled in May. Mm. That means we discovered this in the winter. So that the pressure was off a little bit. It wasn't going to take on more crazy sherry over the winter. It wasn't going to take on more color. Yeah. It's already right, dark mahogany, I think Travis Williams called it. <laughs> right? It it had already taken on the color it was going to take on. It wasn't going to take on any adverse qualities yeah. from another few months in cask mm -hmm. in scotland in the winter yeah exactly. but we exactly but we did know to put it on our very next round of bottling yeah that was where we were so so yes at the at the six month sample portion we knew what the future held for this we didn't need to pull samples at nine months in the sherry no we knew we were moving towards bottling. Yeah, I, I think your point is a good one, right? Because it, it was during the colder months and, and whiskey is really, 
it's it's gaining age, but it's for the most part lying dormant within those colder months. And so, yeah, so, so that's good. And then he had another question. This is sort of a general question. And I'm uh, waiting on you, like, like counsel saying, no further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> like, I feel like, whew, what kind of sentence does this end with for Jason? And so this is, this is with the idea of, of tasting Cass in mind. He says, for that matter, how often do you taste any of your whiskeys as they age? It's my understanding that the whiskeys that you all sample are either sent from distilleries direct or provided by distillers on site. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, and I, I guess I can talk to this one a little bit, you know, a good number of our casks are, are being stored at our bottling hall. And so if we want to taste one of these casks to see if it will fit within a general release, we will then request a sample of that cask. The fact of the matter is, is it costs money to get samples of casks and also takes time. Um, so we, we only ask for samples when we need them. It, it just doesn't make sense to continually ask for samples we have enough casts in store to just let them lie and, you know, it's not maturing in Kentucky or India or Israel. It's, you know, in the cooler climates of, of Scotland. So, And I think that's the third category that could have been added to Tom's question there, which is we're watching our own casks as well. Yeah. And, and you, you, no matter who you're storing with you just simply don't get to ask for samples every three months it's just not the way it's working you have to be smart you have to have a plan for your whiskies you have to ask yourself if we move this into this cask if we re-rack how long are we likely to re-rack that for yeah and the the first fills are moving lickety split the second fills are moving a little slower. The refills are slower again. And and so you need to map out yeah. where you're pooling and when you're pooling. Yeah. The other thing for us is if we have purchased sight unseen, which is becoming a larger part of our business as well through necessity, as soon as they reach our warehouse, we're pooling samples from every single Immediately, one of Immediately, yeah, to then know what and we need to do, yeah. Exactly, yep. exactly. So there's there's multiple facets to the business and how we're running the business, but you have to be smart. You don't get, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter is we don't live and work on site. We're not walking through our own warehouse. Mm-hmm. We're not able to take out the Valinch and just dip into a cask as we see fit which is a, a part of the business that I, I really miss. I'm really mm. sad we don't have that. At the same time, even when you're running that kind of business, you're not just roaming through the warehouses daily. No, <laughs> no, you're not. That's still yeah. not happening. And, and if you want to be a growing business, you or a growing, evolving business, you need to grow and evolve along with the necessities that, that allow for that growth. Um Cool. So, geez, there's there's like a bunch of other questions underneath question mm-hmm. four. Because of time, I'm going to skip over that, Tom. Mm-hmm. I hope you don't mind. But he, he had some 
some bits that he added on to the end here. And he says, I apologize for all of these questions, but I find this whole process intriguing. And then he has a, a, a bit more in there about his questions. I'm going to skip forward to where he says, listening to you both, as well as Jess and Elijah from time to time, really is like hanging out with friends. I appreciate your Simpsons and Lord of the Rings references <laughs> <laughs> and any other non sequiturs that occur along the way. My only regret is that I cannot enjoy a dram or three with you as I listen and drive. He's very smart. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Don't, yes. don't do that. Hashtag always drink the whole bottle responsibly and definitely not in a car. Um, I wish hashtag you... McMira. Hashtag McMira. I wish you... All continued success with the, quote, pad cost and beyond. Mm -hmm. Thank you in advance for your time and consideration. Cheers. Warm regards. Tom Jodelka. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Uh, That was really rocking. Those were those are very smart questions. And I I love when we get to talk to some of the misconceptions of, you know, how often are you tasting? When are you making your decisions? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Right. How, how I would hope anybody who's followed the nation for any amount of time gets to ask the question, was this really an accident? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, because when I saw serendipity, I remember thinking to myself, was that really an accident? You know, did you really turn the mm-hmm. wrong mm-hmm. pipe there? You know, there's the Kilholman with um, Amburach. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and Barak, and Barak, you probably are pronouncing it better than I am. No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sad lowlander. I, I have no Gaelic in my history, and but, but again, right when I hear that coming from Kilholman, I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, I know the size of your operation, expanding all the time. I can, I can, I can believe that that was an accident. There are larger corporations making accidents. I have a harder time getting my head around me. As you say, fucking up a spreadsheet. Yep, that's the real deal. That's a hundred percent the real deal. I, I will tell you though, the response that we're seeing. Oh yeah. Oh, be, it, it, it's there been. There might be a future first fill bourbon into first fill sherry. There might be. There might be. So accidentally on purpose. <laughs> there might be. <laughs> yeah and that's that's the part for us right with tom patiently awaiting his bottle asking you know that, that question of you know when do i get to taste this when do i get to do this it's it's imperative for us at all times that these bottles get out into nation members hands so that they can start talking amongst themselves right did you get a bottle of that did you like it yeah like even travis finished his own review my only regret is i didn't get a second yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there you go. That's that's the way this kind of happens. But sold out in two hours. The demand is there for it. There, yeah, we might have a chance to do this uh, again. Obviously, we would we would be uh, approximately a year away from its release, and we would have to make it happen first. And it has not happened yet. So, we're we're talking about a project another year to two years to maybe three years away. So, watch this space as. Rachel Barry, who you mentioned in the beginning, was very <laughs> fond of saying when she was with Ardbeg. Just 
before we get out of here, we did have Ian Bruce jump right into the breach to find us Haggis Basher t-shirts. Yeah. Thank you, Ian. We did get them. I did put the the photos, the images in front of Greg. Greg remembered a different color. I remembered a slightly different design. Both he and I wondered if it was never a trademarked proposal. And it was just any tartan and tea and biscuits shop um, could could have a haggis basher t-shirt du jour. So um, <laughs> there, there may very well be a haggis basher t-shirt in my future. Anybody listening, if you... If you see one online, Etsy, Pinterest, what have you, please do send us in uh, some links, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com, no Ian Whiskey, or info at singlecastnation.com. Never hesitate to reach out and communicate with us. We do love hearing from you. Ian, you moved on that very quickly and I appreciate it. Keep searching, keep having a look, see what else you can send in to us. I feel like you just picked my strawberries right there, Jason. I'm the one and they were juicy. <laughs> they were juicy, you my held friend. them in your hand. Sweet. Well, <laughs> lots of spots. I mean, seeds. No, it just got worse. Oh, yeah, you're making it worse. Is that like spotted dick? That's something else. Anyway. That is something that else. Is something else. Does not go with strawberries. <laughs> Only goes with custard. No, I, I, I do appreciate you putting out there the various ways people can contact us. If you want to be like Ian or Tom, you can use the various ways Jason mentioned. And... Uh, until then, Jason, it's been a pleasure. It's been it was wonderful talking with uh, Steve, formerly from Westland, now from the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, and uh, looking forward to maybe raising a glass with him in person in the future. Before too long, though, would be nice. Yep, let's continue to watch the rise of American Single Malt. I'll raise a glass to that one. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Cheers.